Creative Babble. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Everyone enjoys a little mystery. And on the new podcast, One Strange Thing, that's just what you'll get. I'm host, Laura Norton. Join me every other week to explore forgotten stories from America's news archives that have something in common, a single element that can't quite be explained. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's the middle of summer and the sun just disappeared under the Pacific Ocean. 23 strangers are on board a charter boat named Freedom for an overnight fishing trip. The plan was simple, just head west deep into the ocean, five hours outside of Los Angeles, and return the following day. There's these fish are coming under us, get here, 60 to 120 feet down. When the sun came up, everyone dropped their lines in the water. After hours of reeling in California yellowtails, it was time to head back home. The Freedom returned to LA with a cooler full of fish and a boat filled with happy anglers. But this fishing expedition didn't go as planned. One of the men on that fishing trip is missing and will never be seen again. That passenger's name is Patrick McDermott. Patrick McDermott, you might not recognize the name, but I bet you might know his girlfriend of nine years, Olivia Newton-John. The star of Greece didn't even realize he was missing. You see, the day before he disappeared, Patrick McDermott went to Olivia Newton-John's home and dropped off flowers and a note. This would be the last time Olivia Newton-John will ever see Patrick McDermott. Was Patrick McDermott lost at sea? Was it a suicide? Or did he stage his death in an elaborate hoax? In the next few episodes, we're going to talk about how to successfully disappear. This short series is a collaboration with Michael Basil. My name is Michael Basil and I'm a privacy and security consultant. I, I help people disappear whenever they need to not be found. For more than 20 years, Michael Basil worked on behalf of the U.S. government investigating computer crimes. He was also a consultant on the hacker show, Mr. Robot. He no longer works for government. These days, Michael Basil helps people disappear. There's one more thing you should know about Michael Basil. He's practically gone off the radar. I don't even know what he looks like. Heck, I don't even know if Michael Basil is his real name. You may remember Michael from a previous episode where I asked him to hack into my personal information. He was able to get my address, phone number, passwords, and social security number. I felt really violated, but that's the whole point. Michael wanted to prove to me how easy it is for someone to find me. But how can I erase all that information if it's already out there? Well, it's not easy, but he knows how. 
So if you don't want to be found, Michael Basil is your guy. Today, we're going to focus on the wrong way to disappear, and that's faking your own death. I'm Javier Leva, and this is Pretend, stories about real people pretending to be someone else. Picture this, a foggy evening, the whisper of secrets in the air, and an invitation to step back into the glamorous and mysterious 1920s. That's the backdrop of June's Journey, the game that's been keeping me glued to my phone lately. Instead of doom scrolling on social media, I am actually playing the part of June Parker, a daring detective with a personal mission to solve her sister's murder. And let me tell you, it is a roller coaster of emotions and puzzles. What's to love? Well, first of all, the thrill of hunting for hidden objects. I'm a sucker for these kinds of games. It's kind of like those books that we grew up with, but with a storyline that keeps thickening. Plus, the game takes place in New York to Paris, uncovering clues of scandalous family secrets that make you feel like a real detective. If you're ready for a dose of mystery, romance, and the glamour of the 1920s, June's Journey is waiting for you. Download it for free on iOS and Android, and let's see who cracks the case first. Faking your own death. There's a word for it. It's called pseudocide. Is faking your death a good idea? In my experience, it is never a good idea long term. Bottom line, it is so difficult to implement uh, faking your own death and so easy to get caught. I just don't see that as an option today. People have been playing dead since the beginning of time. There's really no way of knowing how long this has been going on, but I can imagine that the illusion of dying is closely correlated with the concept of debt. If you owe someone lots of money, you have two options. You either pay it or you run away. I haven't seen any real study on this, but I can imagine that there are many reasons why someone would want to leave their own life behind and start fresh. It could be forbidden love, like in Romeo and Juliet, or it could be greed like someone trying to cash in on their own life insurance policy. When it comes to dying, people have many different motivations. Well, and what are some of the reasons why people would want to fake their own death? Uh, in my experience, it's fraud. The people that I have that are, have been adamant about, I need to fake my own death, it's almost always related to fraud, either insurance fraud, they're trying to get some money, or they are trying to run away from a debt. That's very common, and they think that faking their own death will get them out of that debt. 
And it just, it never works long-term. Michael Basil says that he won't cross that line for his clients. However, there have been some clients who needed to die in order to get away. I have clients that will start the conversation with uh, naively saying, well, maybe I could just fake my own death and then this person will stop trying to find me and then I can just disappear and live my life normally. And those, those customers aren't really thinking about fraud. They're just thinking about protecting themselves. But with those types of clients, it's much easier to just make yourself disappear without faking the death. Let's get back to Patrick McDermott, Olivia Newton-John's missing boyfriend. It took 10 days for anyone to realize he was missing. Olivia Newton-John wasn't looking for him because, well, he just recently broke up with her. It wasn't until he didn't show up to pick up his son that his ex-wife noticed something was wrong. When the manager of the marina was asked about McDermott's whereabouts, he said that Patrick McDermott's name was indeed on the ship's manifest. And there was something else. He left behind his tackle box, and inside that, they found his wallet, driver's license, and car keys. Something was fishy about this. Was Patrick McDermott lost at sea, or was he just on the run? The truth is, no one wanted to find out. His ex-wife filed a claim on his life insurance, and Olivia Newton-John just wanted the whole thing put behind her. But the world wanted to know. My name is Philip Klein, and I am a Texas uh, state licensed investigator, and I hunt people for a living. Dateline NBC wanted to hire Philip Klein to track down Patrick McDermott. So Dateline called us on the phone and said that we understand y'all the go-to people in the United States. We'd like to talk to you about a case. They told Klein that they wanted to find a man who went missing after a fishing trip. They said, He just simply disappeared. Nobody knew where he was. They didn't tell me anything about Olivia and John. They didn't tell me anything about Hollywood. They didn't tell me anything about anything. And they flew us up to uh, New York City. And they said, well, this is a case about Olivia Newton-John's missing boyfriend, Patrick McDermott. I said, okay, well, everybody leave the room and give me about two hours. Throw me some sandwiches in here. Give me two hours and and, uh, let me read up on this thing. But right from the start, this case didn't add up. Did he commit suicide and jump over the boat? You've got 60 people on this chartered boat. You've got a crew of six. I, I kind of lean towards people don't just jump off of boats, okay? That's not an easy way to die. If you're going to kill yourself, you get a gun and put it to your head, or you jump off a bridge, or you eat poison, or you eat medication. You don't just jump off of, off of a boat. The bottom line was I just kind of thought it was it was uh, had all the all the signs of a guy that should try to walk away from life, which interests us. And uh, so that's where we started. We started interviewing everybody up and down. Philip Klein and his team flew to LA and hit the streets of Hollywood. His relationship with Olivia Newton-John was just not the best. Interestingly enough, Olivia Newton-John did not welcome the help of Dateline or Philip Klein. But she did did block us uh, in the investigation. And I think she blocked us because she was just trying to get on with her life. She had just gotten married to another man, and I don't blame her. Olivia Newton-John hired her own private investigator, and their conclusion was that Patrick McDermott purposely jumped off the boat in order to end his own life. Their conclusion was that he jumped off the boat. It was suicide. Our conclusion was, after we interviewed everybody, including everybody on the boat, including all the staff members on the boat and the captain and the ownership of the boat, There was no way he jumped off that boat. There's no way. There were people out on it all night long. 
and he was seen getting off the boat and he sold his fish to some other people and he helped another little boy. So we knew that when the boat landed, he got off the boat. How anybody missed that, we don't know. Philip Klein says Patrick McDermott had every reason to run away. His production work had dried up and he owed his wife thousands of dollars in back child support. But here's the thing. People just can't run away without leaving behind some clues. When he did disappear, he did leave what we call a rabbit trail. They all leave rabbit trails because everybody wants to be found. You know, we always go by the theory as, as hunters and people hunters. Everybody always wants to look over their shoulder and see who's chasing them. And when they do that, they run into a wall or run into a fence. And, and then we're right there to get them. Philip Klein was counting on Patrick McDermott to make some mistakes. And when you disappear, there's one thing that you don't do. You don't go talk to people. You don't get out in public and, and without changing your appearance. And you don't pay for things with large amounts of cash because people have a tendency to remember that. The other thing you don't do is you don't attempt to call home two or three times. And, and he did attempt to do that. Before Philip Klein ever started looking, reports of sightings of Patrick McDermott were coming in from the Mexican Baja Peninsula. It didn't seem like Patrick McDermott was keeping a low profile, and he can easily stand out in a crowd in Mexico. And he was a very distinctive person. He's of Korean descent, has the perfect tan, has a great Hollywood smile. If you look him up, he looks like a model for a touch of gray hair product with his feathery salt and pepper hair. But Philip Klein wasn't going to wait for Patrick McDermott to just land on his lap. If he was ever going to find this guy, he needed to set a trap. The technology uh, we used is a tracking device. It's, it's called a cookie device, or sometimes we call it a, a, a trapping website. You probably already know this, but web cookies are bits of data sent to your computer to track your visits and activity. Marketers use it all the time. Philip Klein set up a website titled Find Patrick McDermott and he tracked everybody's location who visited that website using cookies and identifying their IP address. Guys like me have the technology. So once you go look at a website, we know how, who you are, where you are, what your location is, and, and what you looked at on the website. We know there have been sightings of Patrick McDermott from Mexico. So when Philip Klein started getting pings from south of the border, he had a strong suspicion it was him. He kept looking at this website. But then the pings started moving along the Mexican coast. He was going from port to port to port to port to port. He was very, very smart. We started getting some hits from down in South America. And that was very kind of strange to us. We were thinking, okay, you know, maybe just people in South America are looking at it. But each of the hits were coming from like uh, Trinidad or Caracas or Aruba near Venezuela. But then they, they, they eventually started hitting in some of these smaller ports like Salvador and all the way down to Rio de Janeiro and San Paulo. But after a year of tracking hits from the website, the pings stopped moving. They kept getting hits from this little small town in the Yucatan Peninsula. We, we caught him looking at, uh, at a little bar in Cozumel looking at the, at the website. So we hopped on a plane and got down there. We got to the bar owners and showed a picture and they said, yeah, that's it. We said, okay, what's he doing? And they said, no, senor, we, we don't want to talk to you about that. Philip Klein believed Patrick McDermott was working as a bosun on a luxury ship. 
That explains why the web hits kept moving up and down, up and down the Mexican coast. That is a very, very, very dangerous area uh, because the cartels pretty much run that, that side of the, of the world. And uh, we, we tracked him north from uh, Viarta uh, to Coro del Rizo. There's a big uh, yacht base in there. It's a big docking area for very large vessels that come in. We asked them, have you seen this man? And they said, oh, we know him. That's Patrick. Uh, we showed his picture to one of the waiters, and he was very shy. And he looked at me, he goes, yeah, he was here last night. And we just all kind of stood there and looked at each other. And I said, okay, where did he stay? And they said, he stayed at the motel. So we went up to the motel, walked in the motel, said, hello, Phil Klein. You know, uh, have you seen this man? Yeah, he, he checked out this morning. He's headed back south. And we got to the marina, and three of them had left that day already. I guarantee you, we just must have missed him. We just must have missed him. The only big yacht docked had just departed. One of them had left 30 minutes prior. Uh, we got the name of the uh, the vessel, but at the, the, the ship, it was owned by a, quote, very prominent person in the country of Mexico. Well, we had learned a while back that a very prominent person in the country of Mexico usually indicates that it has something to do with you know, one of the cartels. Patrick McDermott got away again, but this time, Philip Klein decided to drop it. Well, we received correspondence from his legal counsel uh, in Mexico City that he wanted to be left alone and that since he didn't have any warrants for his arrest, there was no interest uh, in him uh, being arrested, that uh, we were considered stalkers at that point. I, I don't think he faked his death. I think he just said, screw it, and walked off. I really do. I think that's, that's what he did. He just took off. And I don't think he was, he didn't make any intentions on anybody getting life insurance. He didn't make any intentions on, on, on paying the par back. He didn't make any intentions on trying to call Olivia ever again. She went on with her life and married somebody. I think the guy just wanted to drop out of society. And you can't blame him. You can't blame him. And I think the decision was made when he was on that on that uh, boat, the Freedom. I think when he was doing the Freedom, and he was out on that boat, I think he got out there in the nice cool air and the, in the sea breeze and said, you know what, what am I doing? I, I'm, a, I'm an unsuccessful a gaffer uh, in the TV business in Hollywood. He can't make his payments on his rent house. His ex-wife is coming after him like a wild banshee. Uh, he's dating Olivia Newton-John, which only brings embarrassment to Olivia Newton-John, right? So what do I got to stay here for? So I think he just, I think he, quite frankly, I think he just got off that boat and left his car, got on public transportation, went down to the border, across the border, and uh, he was able to make it all the way down to uh, uh, Mexico, being Cabo San Lucas, and he got a job. He started running out of money, he got a job like we all did. I asked Michael Basil what he thought of the Patrick McDermott case. Is it illegal to fake your death? I mean, can you just fake your death and not break a law? It would be pretty difficult because if you're going to properly fake your own death, there's going to be some kind of documentation like a death certificate, which is going to be considered a government document, most likely. And that alone could be considered a crime. This uh, Patrick McDermott guy that was dating Olivia Newton-John, he basically walked away. I think he was just had a lot of debt, was done with life and just walked away and moved to Mexico. 
Is that illegal? No, I don't think it is. Well, maybe the skipping out on your debt might have some consequences, but uh, I say that a lot when people... Michael says that leaving everything behind is not in itself technically illegal, but walking away from debt and other responsibilities, well, that's another story. I say that a lot where people just say, I'm done with this, I'm going to walk away. And I don't consider that anywhere near faking your own death in, in which you usually generate a death certificate and have some official documentation. I think people walk away from their lives all of the time. Has technology made it easier or harder to disappear? Oh, much harder. In the past, if you wanted to fake your own death or just run away from life, your main concern was not being seen. I don't want someone who knows me to see me and say, oh, there's Javier, I thought he died. That was the biggest threat. And today, that's the least likely way you're going to get caught. We have surveillance technology. There's surveillance cameras everywhere. And it's not just recording video to some hard drive or some system that stores it when, when no one's looking at it. We now see things like facial recognition getting involved with this. In those scenarios, facial recognition is documenting every person as they walk by. This is very common in foreign airports. And there's going to be a log, not just of the video of you, but possibly your name, date of birth, and travel information. We have a situation where being seen physically by Joe, the neighbor that you had 20 years ago, is probably not going to happen, but technology is going to catch you within days of your disappearance. I think about money. If I were to just walk away and quote unquote fake my own death, I'm trying to think, how much cash do I need in order to pull this off? You need enough cash to live the rest of your life or get you to the point that you can make more cash, which is also becoming more difficult. And I guess you have your challenges of getting a job, right? In terms of a lot of jobs require identification and taxes and all that. So you really would have to get a job that you could work under the table, right? Yeah, you're going to have to have an illegal job. That's pretty much it. Any legitimate employment, especially in the United States, is going to mandate a social security number, date of birth. And those checks are going to have to be deposited or cashed somewhere. And again, there's always going to be that trail. There's going to be a money trail, which is going to be a digital trail, which is then going to lead that private investigator to you because of that check that you cashed at some grocery store in 2019. When, when it comes to disappearing, an amateur would think that changing their name is the first step that they should do. Would, would you recommend that? I rarely recommend the name change. I don't have an objection for people changing their name due to emotion. What I don't recommend is people who say, I want to change my name so no one can find me. That also just doesn't work today. 40 years ago, it, it did. 40 years ago, that name change record was on an index card in some county clerk file cabinet and no one knew about it. Today, there's a digital trail with everything. Your, your new name is going to be associated with your social security number. That's going to be available in a premium report, like a commercial report about you, which anyone can buy for $15 and find out your new name. And also changing your name could also be breaking a lot of laws. For instance, if you want to get a driver's license, if you're creating a fake name to like an alias, you could be breaking the law, right? It, it depends. So I put those in two different categories, an alias or a fake name versus a name change. But it's, it's not illegal to say you're someone else. Celebrities do it all the time. I have probably hundreds of aliases by now. That in itself is typically not illegal. If I go to a hotel and I tell that person behind the desk, the hotel clerk, and I tell her my name's Michael Doe, 
that's a lie, but that's not a crime. There's no law that says you can't lie to the hotel clerk. It's really when financial and government institutions get involved, now you have to be very careful. When you give that fake name to a government official or you use it to open a bank account, now you're you're creating some situations where you're committing crimes. Now you're committing fraud of some sort or you're violating laws because you told the cop a fake name. Now we get into a problem. That's something that I have to tiptoe very carefully with clients to explain what's legal and what's not. If you're on the run and you want to disappear and assuming you, you tried to fake your death, how do you keep it all straight? It's very difficult, especially if you're maintaining multiple aliases, which most people need to to do this right. Keeping everything straight is difficult. One thing I do recommend if, if people have a common first name, like my first name's Michael, keep that first name because you'll have that natural reaction to it. If someone is passing me and says, oh, hey, Bill, I probably won't react to that the same way I would if someone said, hey, Michael, and I might turn my head much more quickly. When people disappear, they leave a breadcrumb trail, maybe not even on purpose, but you do. You just leave a track that leads you to your location. What are some of the biggest mistakes that people make? Well, there's a lot of ways to leave a track and a lot of them are unintentional. So, for example, we've done this on a show of yours in the past where I looked you up and told you your address and your previous address. I can now go talk to those old neighbors and find out maybe if you told them where you were going or if they knew what kind of car you drove. There's all of these unintentional trails that are left that people don't consider when they're trying to run away. A lot of times it's me abusing the, the postings of your family. We see people all the time that will try to disappear, but now try to convince your 13 year old son that you wanna disappear. If I know that Javier has fallen off radar, but I know that Javier has a 16-year-old named whatever, I'm now going to target that 16-year-old's social network activity because he's going to post something that's going to compromise his dad. It's the family members that we don't think about that don't want to cooperate. That's probably going to get you in more trouble. When I was doing investigations uh, for the government when I was still in law enforcement, if I had a wanted fugitive, there, I never expected that fugitive to post on Facebook. But in one scenario, I had the fugitive son post to his Facebook page, all excited, I get to see my dad tonight, which excited me because now I get to see his dad tonight too because we're <laughs> going to go pick him up. So a lot of times, it's not anything that you're doing, it's the people in your life and what they are doing. What are bad ways to die? Like, Or like the obvious ways to die that would raise alarm. I think the biggest alarm uh, is the people who buy the extended life insurance policy the week before they supposedly die. We still see that people that are they're in a rough place, they're having these big major life impacting problems. They've decided they're going to fake their own death, but they need money or they want their family to have money. So out of the blue, after 30 years with this insurance plan, they want to raise the limits to triple the insurance uh, and then they die a week later. These are all typical red flags, which we've heard about and seen for many years, yet people still think that they can get away with it. And the reality is it's just not going to go smoothly. Well, and let's talk about the practicalities of faking your death. In order to fake your death, you kind of need to prove that you're dead, right? How do, how do people actually produce documentation for confirming their death. Many years ago, it was Photoshop or some type of uh, homemade documentation, and that was acceptable often by various entities. Today, that's, that's all done with, that doesn't exist. 
in fact, one technique I had a long time ago was to run obituaries of people in local newspapers to give the element that they are gone. A newspaper won't even run an obituary today unless you have a valid death certificate that they can verify through a third party source, such as the county where the person died. If you're going to die, you probably need a body in order to prove it. Elizabeth Greenwood documents this process in her book, Playing Dead. Greenwood was able to travel to the Philippines and order a copy of her own death certificate. The story went a little something like this. Two vehicles were driving very fast on a busy street in Manila. One of the vehicles swerved into oncoming traffic. One of the drivers, a Caucasian woman named Elizabeth Greenwood, well, she was pronounced dead at the scene. A few days later, Elizabeth Greenwood was holding her own death certificate. Faking her own death wasn't easy, but it wasn't hard either. The typical scam goes something like this. You find a country that will play ball, such as the Philippines, and you are going to need to be there physically. You're going to have to have connections to the right people. In order to properly stage your own death, you need a body. But in every case I've ever seen where someone's truly going the distance to fake their own death, an actual dead body is involved. It's just not the person who died. You can't just walk into the morgue and say, hey, any bodies unclaimed, they're going to look at you like you're crazy. But as long as you've paid off the right people, you can get to that medical examiner who wants a payout. Typically, let's say someone dies, they're riding a moped, they get hit by a car, they die. And this body is now at the medical center. No one claims the body. Maybe the person didn't have family or friends, or maybe no one just cares. I don't know, but there are many situations where no one claims that body. There's now an unclaimed body, and a corrupt medical examiner can look at that and say, here's an opportunity. You don't necessarily need to rely on a crooked medical examiner. You could just walk into a morgue in a developing country and ask to see the unclaimed bodies. Find a body that fits your needs and then start fake crying. Say it's your uncle, who also happens to go by your own name. And voila! But if someone said to me, hey, that's that's Javier. His name's Javier Leva. Oh, okay, now I can put that on a, a death certificate. I have the body. I have the authority to sign that death certificate. I have the authority to pronounce that person dead. And I have the authority to say that it is in fact Javier. I can now do all that, create the paperwork, which costs me nothing, and tell you that's gonna cost you $1,000. And now you have, that, you have to pay me that $1,000 to get that paper. Now, if you have that death certificate from the Philippines, you now get to America and your, your next of kin says, yeah, Javier died and uh, here's his death certificate, here's a medical examiner. So now you have a body, a real death certificate signed by a real medical examiner. Is this enough to fool the insurance companies? The life insurance company, the moment they see a death certificate come from the Philippines or especially from Manila, it's high alert and no one's getting paid for a while until they can truly figure out that, that person really is dead. You see, when people fake their own deaths overseas, they get a death certificate and the cremated body. But that's not enough to satisfy fraud investigators. They need proof. And you can't do a DNA test on a person's ashes. A lot of these insurance plans don't produce any kind of payment until a body is recovered. Typically, when people drown, a body is eventually recovered. It ends up in a dam or floating somewhere. Then, of course, when that happens, OK, now we have physical proof. I think any scenario where a person is, quote, dead end quote, without having a body present, it could be years before you get a payment and it could be years before that case is closed and people finally say, OK, he probably is dead. The people who are trying to fake their own death, they want that immediate satisfaction. 
In Elizabeth Greenwood's book, Playing Dead, her research states that if you really wanted to successfully collect on a life insurance policy, you have to make it international. You need a fake passport from one country, an insurance policy from a second country, have the fatal accident in a third country, and the beneficiary, the person collecting the money, is in the fourth country. Having so many countries involved makes it really difficult for investigators to catch you. But really, who wants to go through all this trouble? I think we're stuck in this mindset of 40 years ago when a movie would show how it's done and how easy it was, and then the, uh, the actor is walking away on the final scene with money in hand. Those days are just over. Is there a better way to disappear? Well, it depends on what you want to disappear from. The people I deal with are trying to run away from a toxic or bad situation, typically. And it's absolutely possible to disappear from that. 20 years ago, you just had to be able to hide from the big data brokers, maybe the top three or top six data brokers. Today, you're hiding from everyone who has a cell phone who publishes content to a social network. So it's worse than ever. There are now free people search sites, hundreds of them online that will tell you practically where everyone in the U.S. lives just by searching their name. Typically, we make it easy for people to find us. We buy homes in our names. We put property taxes in our names. The utility bills are in our true names. Our cell phone numbers are in our real name. A savvy investigator could track you down in no time. If we have that phone in our name, in our pocket, tracking us 24 hours a day, it's not very hard for a private investigator to say, uh, currently he's at work because I have this access to this whatever system. The way Michael Basil helps his clients disappear is by taking them out of those systems. Michael has a book called Extreme Privacy, and it's become a sort of Bible for me. In his book, he details every step you need to take in order to disappear the legal way. I've begun the process of disappearing myself, and it's not quick and it's not easy. But I've managed to remove myself from the majority of these public databases. I'm not trying to fake my own death. I just don't want a disgruntled listener or a subject I've interviewed to do a simple Google search and come after me or my family. If you just take yourself out of those systems, you've defeated the majority of what's going to be required in order to find you. But if you really wanted to find me, it wouldn't be that difficult. I've only begun to disappear. But Michael Basil has been living a private life for years. It would take a really savvy investigator to track him down. I've been pretty much off radar, at least on digital and on paper, for many years to where my, my house is not in my name, my phone's not in my name, nothing's in my name. So Michael, is it possible to actually live a normal life without making all of your information public? I think it is. Of course, that requires one to define what's normal, but absolutely you can. I know many people who do. The first thing I tell people is you need to define your priorities. Typically, friends and family, that's a high priority. And I believe that you can still have those relationships with your friends and family and nothing has to change there. It's a matter of what don't you want? What line will you not cross? Do you need social networks? Do you have to be on Facebook and Twitter? And if the answer is yes, then we know right away that you're not going to fully disappear. But if the answer is no, we can figure out ways to to eliminate those things and still let you have a normal life. Me, I, I think I've disappeared about as much as someone can, with the exception of doing this podcast. And I don't have things in my name and I don't need a home in my name, but I can still have those relationships with friends and family and former colleagues and I can still travel freely and I still have the freedom to go and do whatever I want. And, you know, I would imagine that if you walked away from your old life, that it would be hard to leave it behind, right? It's It can be an emotional problem because 
and I see this a lot where, especially my domestic violence clients who it's life or death for them. They have to leave this toxic, abusive relationship and they know that they can't just pop by their moms whenever they want to visit mom because uh, he might be watching and waiting. And that takes the bigger toll is, do you have the ability to leave that life behind? And for most people, the answer is no. That's why we try to find somewhat of a happy medium. Let's figure out a way to have that normal life for that person without saying, you're moving to a mountain. You'll never talk to anyone you ever knew again and this is your new life. In my experience, if you make that fine line and tell someone you can never do these things ever again, they're going to fail and go ahead and give up and go back to that old life. So your question earlier about can you make it normal? We have to make it normal. We have to make it to where life is still enjoyable. I am not one of these people who say move to the mountain, have no friends, never go to the store. I, I think that's ridiculous. I think we can just do this in a way to prevent strangers and PIs and journalists and whoever else might be trying to hunt you down. We can make it to where they can't find you, but yet still keep that normal life with your family. In the next few episodes, we're going to talk you through the process of disappearing. Anyone can do it. And by the end of the series, you might seriously consider dropping off the face of the earth too. A special thanks to Philip Klein. If you want to read more about Patrick McDermott's disappearance, check out the book titled Lost at Sea, The Hunt for Patrick McDermott. And I highly recommend you order yourself a copy of the book Extreme Privacy, What It Takes to Disappear by Michael Basil. I reference this book all the time. Michael Basil also has a podcast called The Privacy, Security, and OSINT Show. You should check it out. I'll have a link to both these books in the show notes. Also, it feels so good to be back. I took the first half of the year off in order to produce my other podcast called Criminal Conduct. If you haven't listened to it yet, go check it out. All 11 episodes are out now and ready to binge. This new season of Pretend is so crazy, I have some wild stories to share with you. We're going to kick it off with this series on how to disappear. And then I'm investigating a case out of Kentucky where a rogue elected official is accused of taking the law into his own hands. He went into their house illegally. One lady, he made her open a safe, take out prescription medicine, which he poured out into a baggie. He took cash, he took two guns, he took a motorcycle and put a sign in her yard that said another drug house taken down. Later on in the season, I'm going to tell you the story of an underwater explorer who says he was tricked by a con man claiming to be a Purple Heart war hero and treasure hunter. This brilliant wounded warrior, he was a scientist who was going to help them create this device that they're working on to scan the ocean floor for any type of material so that they could find treasure. The funniest thing is probably when you look at the photo of him that appeared on the front page, he's wearing a fur-lined like bomber jacket, like leather bomber jacket. And he's wearing this hat that's like very Indiana Jones-esque. So he's, you know, he's presenting himself as such a, an adventuring treasure hunter. It, it's the kind of guy you'd be excited to have a beer with and talk to if you believe yeah. the story for sure. 
I hope you're all taking care of yourselves and staying indoors as much as possible and wearing a mask. This is such a hard time for everyone in the world. The least I could do is continue to work on the show so I could bring you some welcome distractions. So stay tuned. I'll be back in two weeks with part two of How to Disappear. I'll talk to you soon. Creative Babble.